Thank you, Ben, for, for leading and uh, prayer. You can, you can hear me okay up there. Just before we get into, uh, into the Word, uh, not an easy chapter to preach on, the story of David and, uh, and, uh, and Bathsheba. <laughs> um, uh, I just wanted to say, where, where I work on level five, upstairs from me in the Samri next to Royal Adelaide Hospital is the health policy unit. So a wonderful team and they compile all this information from governments all around the world and research and then they give that to Nicola Spuria so she knows what to do. And they've been doing a pretty good job. The three times in the last 18 months I get to talk with uh, Carolyn Miller, the leader, occasionally really enjoy uh, from, a, from a blood point of view. Um, three times in the last 18 months they really thought we were done, that, the ho- that there were community infections at large, um, other strains and no unvaccinated. Um, and yet, we have been spared every time. Now, you can point the finger, you can complain about governments and Melbourne or what have you. I tell you, it's the mercy of God. It's the mercy of God. They do not even understand why we are still protected. There should have been 200 cases that came over 10 days ago. We can't find any. So, can we stand? Can you stand? You don't have to stand up, but can you stand with me in prayer and just thank the Lord because He's obviously got big plans for South Australia. We have been blessed for those who have given much, much as is required, and then we'll we'll pray for the word. So, Father, we just thank you. Your Son is alive. He's the true CEO of Australia through the Australian churches, and He has chosen to protect Adelaide that is now officially the safest state in the safest country in the world. We said that 12 months ago, but now it's official. Father, let us not forget the privilege we have in being able to meet together, to be able to give generously to missionaries, to uh, work overseas in, in, in the developing world. Father, we pray that we would not lose the, the, the fervor, that your Holy Spirit would continue to give us wisdom. And we do pray, as it says in Peter, for our governments and authorities that they remain sensible uh, and um, God-fearing and that righteousness would flourish in this land. Amen. Amen. We pray for this word. So who's enjoyed the series on, uh, on David these past two months? Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Speaks to the, speaks to the heart. So this is, this is 2 Samuel 11. Um, really, it's the pivotal um, turning point in David's life. Um, the story of David and Bathsheba. And it's right at the heart of 2 Samuel. There's only 24 chapters in 2 Samuel. This is chapter 11 and 12. And, and many theologians would see this story as the beginning of the rest of the Old Testament. Everything started to go wrong after this time. The slow, paltry decline of David's uh, dynasty. Um, but before we read a few verses, uh, I, I really wanted to comment, um, and, and Mark brought this out last week, on the the unique literary style in Samuel. So it's actually quite different from other books in the Old Testament. Uh, and, and this has really helped me in my devotions to, to, to get to, to draw more out, of, out of, of Samuel. There's three really interesting things in its literary style. What you'll notice is there's a lack of a judgmental voice continually. So God somehow lets the story play out for a bit longer before you really know who's good and who's bad and who is on whose side. And, you know, is Michal good or bad? Is Levi? Um, uh, this is what we call a suspended verdict in literature. And there is, a, there, is a, uh, there is a voice of judgment there, but, and in this chapter there is, but it only comes right at the end. This makes it tough to preach on because you don't quite know um, how to interpret the events. 
But God is obviously letting these characters play out. And perhaps many have said the genius of the books of Samuel is God's trying to engage with our hearts. And if you're really honest, you can see yourself in every one of the characters. You know, even Saul, someone with mental illness. You can see, you can see um, God weighing up in your own heart the events and the choices that they're making. So the characters in Samuel are flawed, but they're likeable. We have Eli the priest, the start, lacking moral fibre, doesn't really discipline his sons, but yet we see how his heart was broken when the ark of God was taken away and he died. He truly loved the Lord. King Saul, as I was saying, anointed with the Holy Spirit, prophesies, courageous in battle, loves to hear David sing psalms in his room, but then he gets profound mental illness. Um, this is perhaps why Dickens' novels and George Eliot novels are so successful. You don't, you, you re, the reason you keep reading is you're trying to work out, well, who's going to win? Who's going to be vindicated? Uh, and how's it all going to end? So the second literary comment that I find fascinating is Book of Samuel is really not just a leadership manual. That's superficial. And it's not just the story of how David becomes king. The common thread that everyone, all the... Theologians can see the common thread in every chapter is the tension between personal piety, personal faith, versus organised external religion and how those two play out. Um, Australians especially, I would argue, including myself, wrestle, wrestle with this tension. You have Hannah's prayer, of piety, accused of drunkenness, and yet Eli's sons cannot even perform proper priestly duties in the organised church. You have Eli as a high priest over the tabernacle, the temple at that time, and yet he's never even heard the voice of God personally. But yet Samuel can. But yet Samuel's in the temple, in the tabernacle. So God hasn't written the whole thing off completely. Not easy for Australians to grapple with these things. Saul manipulates religion in order to win a battle in the army and Samuel gets really upset with him. And we can do the same thing. Um, and then you have a shepherd boy singing psalms out in the fields. No one can even see him. And yet God chooses him to be king. So you see the tension between are we going to be people of personal faith who walk in the, in the quiet place with Christ or, as we're about to see in this story, are we going to use the organised state to do people in. Um, so in this story, David, the whole, this is the exact same thing, personal faith versus external, external systems, except it's been inverted. David's actually trying to hide what he conceived, well, he knows it's wrong, what he conceived in his heart by manipulating things around him. And it doesn't work. And its implications are sobering. But I have good news for us as Christians in the, new, in the New Covenant. Because of the work of David's seed in the cross of Christ, it says in Romans, the love of God has been poured out through the Holy Spirit in, into, our, into our hearts. We've been given a new heart by the power of the cross. And the third literary comment is this, we have to face the fact, this is a story of failure. It's a story of a, of a good leader failing. Um, for those who are interested in apologetics, 
This is perhaps one of the strongest proofs, forget about archaeology, that the Bible is not made up. You do not write stories to this detail about the failure of countries and kings. You'll never see it. You'll never see the Chinese regime at the moment write all and broadcast all of their failures of the last 20 years. You won't, you won't read it. How, how on earth did this even get into sacred scripture read by millions? But God isn't squeamish about talking about failure. We, we, it's not easy for us to talk about failure. Um, when I was in America, they, you, you, you never even get an autopsy at a board meeting. They don't like talking about it. God's not squeamish about talking about failure. Um, and we can miss this in our daily devotions because we're always searching for edifying uh, scriptures, which is fine. But in one sense, the entire Old Testament is actually a story of failure. We have to admit this. Um, it's easy to do David and Goliath at Sunday school in this particular story. But God talks about failure. Why? And he doesn't shy away, away from it. Why? Because the story of man's failure is the beginning of the glory of the cross. Hallelujah. So let's read the first part of the story. 2 Samuel 11, 1 to 5. David has become king. He's married to Abigail. Michael's come. Michal's come back. Other wives. He's, just, he's, he's living in the palace. He's prayed for God to build a house. And he's recently engaged in a war with the Ammonites. Everything's going great. Everything's going well. Um, then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings uh, normally go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they brought destruction on the sons of Ammon and they besieged Rabbah. But David stayed in Jerusalem. I've had the pleasure of being in Amman which is the, now the capital of Jordan. Um, that's where the Ammonites lived, across the, across the uh, Jordan River. Now, at evening time, David got up from his bed. Right? No judgmental comment yet. <laughs> and walked about on the roof of the king's house. And, uh, and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And she was very beautiful in appearance. It's an ugly word starting with V that's going on here that I probably would use in a men's, in a men's talk. Um, so David sent, uh, voyeurism, David sent servants and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messages and had her brought. And when she came to him, he slept with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. But the woman conceived and she sent word. See, all these servants would know about what's going on by now. Um, she sent word and informed David and she said, I'm pregnant. Nah, nah. This is like a home and away. <laughs> Dynasty, Melrose Place. No, you guys don't remember that one. Um, riveting. God, look, God could have picked any other sin to talk about at the pivotal point of David's life. Remember Moses getting too angry, whacking the rock? Abraham lying about his wife? God could have Why does God choose sexual failure as his crossroads? Um, put up your hand if you've ever, if you've, put up your hand if you've never struggled with temptation. I see that hand. <laughs> um, okay, this is my only scientific quiz for today. Maybe we can get... Uh, Brother, if we can get this. Okay, so what, does anyone know what this is, the structure of? Who wasn't, 
who's not in the band. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, th so this is testosterone, and it's it's a master switch um, in every level in our bodies. Testosterone increases our bone mass. It increases muscle mass. People with low testosterone have very uh, sarcopenia, weak muscles. Prevents osteoporosis. Deepens the voice. Promotes hair growth and hair baldness, hair loss. Prevents cardiovascular disease. Prevents breast cancer. Um, the way you would, th this is one of the few molecules in nature that can go directly all the way into DNA and act, activate transcription factors. Most other molecules need to get imported. So because it's a steroid, it just diffuses straight in. Um, and the way you would describe it, it's like a dimmer switch that as you slowly turn it up, all these other programs and orchestras and lights start happening. It has a, they, they believe it has about 400 different states that it works on depending on the level of testosterone in your body. I mean, you, you couldn't possibly design this even if you were the best engineer in the world. So God invented these desires and I, I just have to state it before we go into David's sin, God has made these desires strong. Uh, many have wrestled with this fact. Hundreds of years, the church taboo, you weren't even allowed to talk about this topic and marriage was forbidden in leadership and it's been disastrous. Because like emotions, these things have to come out and they come out in strange ways if they're not given uh, God's sanctified access. Um, many young people have come up to, I know Craig Schultz, and when I've worked uh, in, in mission fields, they, they, many young people will say they, they really want to follow Jesus. But they burn. And they, they walk around in self-condemnation and shame. In Genesis 1.28, after creating man, God says, be fruitful and multiply. And he, he, when he creates things in Genesis, it, they're teeming with life. And it even says, if you look in the, the Hebrew, it says, and he created the trees and the plants laden with seed. Laden with seed. Genes ready to reproduce again. God wants to fill the heavens. He wants to fill the earth. And so he's made reproduction um, very strong, embedded in, 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 embedded in nature. We wouldn't be sitting here today if God hadn't made that strong. Five chapters in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, each on detailed instructions regarding physical intimacy. First chap ten chapters in Proverbs, warning young men, don't go off to the harlot. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, I tell you a great mystery. A man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I am speaking with reference to Christ and the... Wow. Wow. So physical intimacy is very important to God because not only did he create it, according to Scripture, it's symbolic of and an approximation of our union with God. Those who are joined to Christ to one spirit. And possibly this is why there's been a lot of confusion and attack on uh, human um, uh, sexual purity in the last two decades. What has been given as a fabulous gift can be deadly if used irresponsibly. Now, the text in verse 1, it, the, the, the ancient Hebrew is actually sally forth, which is a description of a king, not a servant or a soldier going out to battle. 
So it's implying David really should have gone. And this is another whole topic you can read in Wild at Heart and some great books about Adam and chaos. But one of the functions of true manhood, I forgot to mention actually, so testosterone in medical experiments, people with low testosterone, animals with low testosterone, cannot, cannot have courage when there's missing information. So testosterone has been given to us, men and, and women, to help us fight the good fight when we're not sure of all of the pieces of the puzzle. It's like, imagine Adam leaving the garden to subdue the earth, to bring that chaos and bring the order of God's covenant. That's one of the functions of the true man. And a true man, and, and, and Jesus is... Um, many, many famous writers have described Jesus as the most virile but sexually pure man that ever lived. If you can swallow that one. So he wasn't a pushover. He wasn't a low testosterone emasculated individual. No, he was high testosterone fighting the good fight. It wasn't easy for him, but yet in purity. Um, so let's read on. So David sent word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. So he's trying to do a cover-up. So Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, um, David asked about his well-being and the army, the condition of the war. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash, wash your feet. This is a Hebrew euphemism for take off your armour, take off your sandals, relax, maybe Bathsheba might give you a bath. And then Bathsheba might give you a little bit of wine and, you can, and we can all be happy, right? Um, but he, he didn't, he miscalculated, and this is what not normally happens with crime, he miscalculated the innocence of Uriah's heart. You notice the way God does this in life? So Uriah is listed as one of the 37. He's actually listed in the in the later chapters, as the last one of David's mighty men, 37, Uriah the Hittite. He wasn't even an, an original-born Jew. He's what we call an assimilated, like an Indian-born Australian. And this is just a passing comment, but I bet you David would not have done this if it was Joab's wife. It's easy to, it's easy to pass over the assimilated foreigners in our lands, isn't it? Um, so this is what we call the, 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 the testimony of the innocent witness. Uriah chooses to sleep outside in the cold. He's confused as what he's even doing here. And himself, he has a duty to go back to the battleground. This comes from this, you know, this famous verse in Leviticus and Exodus that says, if you get married to your wife, don't go to war in the first year so you can give her pleasure. In their mind, there was a big difference between duty on the battlefield and being at home in domestic affairs. And, and Uriah takes this very seriously as one of the greatest warriors. And he would have been happy to lay his life down to David like that. And he would not, you can tell from his language, he does not even conceive in his mind that David's just slept with his own wife. So this is what we call the alarm bell of the innocent. God is trying to give David a way out. You talk to converted criminals and they will tell you about the number of innocent witnesses that God sent along in their lives, imploring them to change their ways. God, in his love, tries to give us a way out, doesn't he? 
Anyway, in the morning, David wrote a letter, we can read on in verse 14, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Uriah is carrying the, the very letter that carries his death sentence. Um, and the letter said, Station Uriah on the front line of the fiercest battle, pull back from him so that he may be struck and killed. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city, he stationed Uriah in the place where he knew there were valiant men and the men of the city went out and fought against Joab and some of the people among David's servants fell and Uriah the Hittite also died. In the Hebrew worldview, sin was taken very seriously. It's the study of harmatiology or missing the mark. To sin in ancient Israel meant to put one's life in entire jeopardy. And we can see a flow-on effect here of sloth, pride, lust, covetous, some drunkenness in there, deception, murder, power abuse. What happens now is murder by proxy. David's cunningly using the system to remove the problem and the rest is history. Even in our workplaces, have you noticed sometimes the problem people, they will move them into jobs where they know they're going to fail so they can get rid of them? It's not the heart of our father. When Uriah's wife in 26 heard that her husband Uriah was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the time of mourning was over, David sent servants, had her brought to his house, and she became his wife. And she bore him a son. And then here is that suspended condemnation voice. Finally, but the thing David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. We never really know what Bathsheba was thinking all this time, do you? Notice it doesn't let you. It's not about her, whether she secretly loved. We know from the Talmud that Bathsheba's grandfather was an amazing scholar who taught David the Pentateuch. But I'm not allowed to quote that because it's not in the Holy Scriptures, so it could, may not be true. So she may have been smart. We don't know for sure. She may have been young when she married Uriah. We don't know for sure. You can, it's implied through Nathan's poem. Um, so then it says in the next chapter, the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to David. And he came and said, there were two men in a city, one wealthy and one poor. The wealthy man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb which he bought and nurtured. He grew up together with him and his children. He would eat scraps from him, drink from his cup, lie in his lap. It was like a daughter to him. And a visitor came to the wealthy man and he could not bring himself to take any animal from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the traveller who had come to him. So he took the poor man's ewe and prepared it for the man who would come. Now, David's anger burned greatly against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this certainly deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb four times over since he did this thing and had no compassion. Um, Martin Gare was, was sitting here before in the former service. In psychology, this is called projection. We, we, we project in anger on others on the very thing we're wrestling that it has not been cleansed in our, in our conscience. It's like, have you ever seen someone who's recently given up smoking? We'll rebuke all these people that are smoking. So David's conscience is not at peace here. 
And Nathan says to David, you yourself are the man. Behold the man. You can see it's an antitype of Christ. Nathan's rebuke poem tells us a great deal about how God regards adultery. Typical of Middle Eastern culture, the accused is described as another person, a third person in a story. Uriah is the poor man with a little lamb that obviously he loved dearly. And adultery in the scriptures is likened to just licking your lips, swallowing a lamb. And then Nathan elaborates on the consequences and the first child dies and the sword never departs from his house. Um, before we move on to the redemptive aspects, it's just worth, worth noting, you can, you can actually, if you choose to, you can actually blow everything away in one small or large rash decision, family, career, ministry. It's interesting how many leaders have been noted in, in world history to lose courage when they fail in the sexual department. There's an amazing book, for those who like military history, um, just been published called Ghost Wars, and it's the story of Bill Clinton working with the CIA after the, the trouble in the White House. And because he lied and because of what happened, he could not find the courage to lead, even as Al-Qaeda began to... Um, blow up the Kenyan embassy and then before in those years before September 11. Um, somehow, in the negative, impurity in the intimacy, intimacy department affects the outward. The righteous are as bold as a lion. But in the good, in the good sense, the cleansing and the, and the intimacy that we have with Christ in the hidden place also gives us strength and power in the marketplace. Hallelujah. So David failed badly, and he failed badly. Why has God put this story in, in sacred scripture with details? And yet we still love him, don't we? We still love him. And we know God still loves him. And so we turn to Psalm 51, Kyrie eleison, um, sung throughout the centuries as sacred liturgy by the Anglican Catholic Orthodox churches for hundreds and hundreds of years. There's another song, uh, Miserere, by the monk Gregory Allegro. You often hear it on Classic FM, ABC, probably one of the um, best sacred music ever composed on earth. Grace me, O God, according to your loving kindness. On account of the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my faults. He doesn't just say, Lord, have mercy. He says, grace me, which is, as you have mercy on me, transform me, fill me with grace. The word tender mercies is actually in Hebrew the plural of their word for wound. You know, as Zoe was talking about the mother heart of God. He's actually, David's actually appealing to the mother heart of He knows he's completely stuffed up. But he's just hoping that there's still a mother heart of God that will remember him and have mercy on him. Against thee and the only have I sinned. As we get older, you realise all sin ultimately is directed against God and actually hurts God a thousand times more than it hurts ourselves. But to his credit, David owns his sin. When Absalom, his son, shames him on the roof of the palace in the next few chapters, the very place where David first saw Bathsheba, he doesn't react. A repentant heart actually sees beauty in God's justice. 
It's not an easy one for our generation to swallow. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin my mother did conceive me. David's actually reminding God that, like us, of his solidarity with the fallenness of the human race. I know when I've been through some really deep, dark times of, of, of failure, those words in the first letter of John have actually restored me. You know what it says in, in, in John 1, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me. And here's really the most important application. Because David has been walking with God on the ordinary days, deeply he longs to be quickly restored to God, no matter how great the mistake. And this is our take-home message. Cultivate intimacy with Christ on the good days so that when you do fail, small or big, and you will, you can be quickly restored. You fall forward longing for the peace that we have as justified believers, a peace that surpasses understanding. So this, this is a dramatic story, but I suspect similar incidents in our lives and extended families are not that uncommon. God knows the brokenness of our extended families, but he also knows how to restore. He knows how to reconcile. It's very hard to find a man or a family on earth that cannot relate to this story, at least in some level. But here's the best part. Do you know there's another man that came from Jesse? It says in Isaiah, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. We get the second, second slide up, that Isaiah slide. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. A branch will bear fruit. Next slide. And this is what I wanted to show you guys. He will not judge by what his eyes see. Amen? But with righteousness, he will judge the poor. Righteousness will be the belt around his, his hips and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. He's the true King David. And we are his true bride. And he will never betray us for something that looks a little better. And when he walks palace roof of heaven and worships his father, he's interceding for each one of us continually. And he's always working for us. He's not idle because his father's always working. And he'll never send us off to be killed expediently because we've become a problem. It's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew in the genealogy of Jesus that through Joseph, Jesus is actually the great-great-grandson of, of Bathsheba. And it's recorded in Matthew chapter 1 that Uriah, that Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah, not the wife of David. So in closing, I want you to close your eyes. You don't have to do this, but I've, I, I, I've been doing this when I've been preparing. I want you to close your eyes and imagine when David finally died and entered into glory and he sees before him a man that he vaguely recognised, a relative of his, burning with love for him and yet still bleeding. 
and can you imagine David's heart when he realised it was actually his great-great-great-great-grandson through Bathsheba. It's the only way he's allowed to enter into paradise. That David, like us, was only permitted everlasting salvation because of the obedience of his own offspring. And one day we're going to see both of them face to face. Amen? Truly, all things work out for the good of those who... If there's hope for David and his family, there's hope for us and our families. Amen? Praise God. Wash me with hyssop and I'll be white as snow. So we're going to have a final prayer. Now, there's three things we're going to pray for. One, that we will continue to practice purity in our communities. Amen? Two, the restoration of those who feel they've just gone too far, committed a sin they can never get back to the Lord. And we're going to pray um, that each one of us in, in, in the Hills community would seek genuine fellowship with this true living King, that a right spirit would be restored within us. All right, let's, let's, uh, let's bow our heads and pray. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.